If you're dealing with someone and they don't think you're trustworthy, there isn't going to be a way to build trust. If you're dealing with someone and you're acting in a trustworthy way, and so are they, there's a chance to build trust. Welcome to the Social Science for Public Good podcast, a project of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance and VT Publishing. In this series, we attempt to make social science theory available and accessible for social change practitioners, such as activists, nonprofit leaders, and government officials. My name is Brad Stevens. And I'm Yugasha Bakshi. We're both PhD students in the Planning, Governance, and Globalization program in the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech, interested in the question of how to build a better world. Welcome back to this special episode, everyone. We've now finished our six episodes on trust and our six episodes on power, although we could easily spend another six episodes on each of those spaces. But now we're going to step a little bit into the question of practice and how we think about that. Um, We've talked about this a little bit throughout in terms of how we might think about practitioners thinking, utilizing these theories here. Is there Something that comes to mind for you, Yugasha, when you like a, uh, a an easy plug-in that you think of immediately from our, our conversations here. Well, I think it is definitely difficult to kind of bring it together in such a little time, and we've been doing pretty well in terms of understanding from some of the most prominent scholars and educationists about all these theories. And like you said, putting into practice is very, very important. My, um, the place that I would go to is urban planning because that's what, I mean, I am an urban planner, so I would straight away think about the way our cities function, the way our our government manages the public services, whether it's water, sanitation, whether it's housing. So my mind goes there and there is a lot of application for both trust and power theories over there. When we think about trust and trustworthiness, which I know you're uh, really fond of that framing, um, how can the government officials, uh, you know, make them se- make themselves seem more trustworthy so that the public would actually go ahead and trust them with the way that they're doing their jobs, the, the way they're functioning, the <clears throat> the entire city systems. Um, And when I think about power, then again, we've also had lots of discussions about the way it functions in the city, the power that the market has when it comes to deciding which land to develop into an, I don't know, a housing market, where to put their industries, where to basically real estate. So um, there are these different power differentials that we work with. And also trust is really, really important to bring us together to essentially have a very well-functioning city. So I don't know if that, if that que- answered your question very well. Well, absolutely. I, you know, I, I'm very interested in this. Uh, you know, we're essentially in a planning program to some degree, although it's very interdisciplinary. But I, I, and I think listening to you there, I, I think my main hope for all of this is that folks that are listening will recognize that these are things that can be approached and changed over time, and so that that urban planner shouldn't assume that the trust breakdown that they have with a certain community is is eternal and cannot be fixed. And in the same way that they shouldn't assume that the power dynamics that they understand now are eternal and cannot change. And so, just you know, I hope that we we've we've 
uh, encouraged some nuanced thinking in those spaces. But uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the urban planning piece, because of course, that is a bit of both of our backgrounds. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about how we might utilize our understandings of power and trust in practice with an urban planner. So today we've got Dr. Lauren Suskind to share his expertise with us. Dr. Suskind is Ford Professor of Urban Environmental Planning at MIT and head of MIT's Science Impact Collaborative. He is also an experienced mediator and negotiation trainer who has worked in over 30 countries. He is the co-founder of the Inner University Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School, where he has worked for three decades to improve the theory and practice of negotiation and dispute resolution. More than 25 years ago, he founded the Consensus Building Institute to help provide mediation services in some of the most difficult resource management disputes around the world. His areas of expertise include the management of transboundary waters, renewable energy facility siting, the management of common pool resources like the Arctic and the oceans, the use of serious games as public engagement tools, innovation in the use of online tools and techniques for joint fact-finding, the rights of indigenous peoples, entrepreneurial negotiation, social responsible, socially responsible real estate development, public-private partnerships for urban development, and cybersecurity for critical urban infrastructure. But you excited to chat with him today, Yugasha? Yes, buddy. Well, Dr. Suskind, thank you so much for joining us on the Social Science for Public Good podcast today. Glad to be with you. Look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, we're both big fans of your work. You've spent much of your career working to help groups of individuals, organizations, large and small, grapple with complex issues in difficult domains such as environmental protection, water governance, urban development, and many other places. And you're a big kind of proponent of consensus-based decision-making, amongst other things here. Can you share a little bit about how you understand the work that you do and how you kind of define your role? I think that as an urban planner originally, uh, I took for granted that decisions in the public realm uh, ought to involve the people who would be affected by them. And uh, I was quite confident uh, graduating as a student um, that um, I, I would take that as my uh, mandate. Uh, and then in practice, uh, some problems arose uh, which people involved uh, when, uh, what context or background do they need in order to present in their voice their concerns? Uh, what if all the people who have a right to be involved say and want totally different things? Is it just letting them make those noises? That's my job. Or what? And it soon became clear to me that my job was not just to create opportunities for whoever wanted to say something to speak to a public issue in a planned context, but rather I needed to help create settings in which appropriate representatives, and I don't mean elected in that sense, can prepare, speak with each other, and with professional facilitation, seek to reach an agreement. Because the way what they say is going to affect whatever decision they're concerned about is by generating a unified argument 
and the evidence to back it up. Well, okay, bring down the 10,000 people who live in the city and try to get agreement on what should or shouldn't be built in a particular place uh, amongst people, some of whom have never spent five minutes thinking about the constraints on that, legal and political and otherwise. And uh, sure, present the results of an environmental impact assessment to those thousands of people. Oh, digitally, we can do it online. Please. You can't do things that way and expect people to be able to absorb that information and come back and be part of a consensus building effort, which is in their interest, because if you can reach agreement, it's a lot easier for those who have to make the decisions to take that set of inputs or suggestions seriously. So I view my work as facilitating the consensus building effort informed by science and technical information and building the capacity of groups to work together to have that chance at having input into whatever decisions in the public realm are going to affect them. Well, as part of uh, the first couple of seasons of our podcast, we have focused on how individuals are interested in building uh, better communities and a better world. Um, might think about uh, power and trust. And part of building these more just communities is um, kind of putting in the work in terms of building and understanding across the many parties that are involved in that, as you're an expert of doing that. Um, how have you come to understand the importance of trust in this um, whole aspect, both conceptually as well as in practice? Yeah, um, I, I've written a number of books. One of them deals with this question. It's called um, Dealing with an Angry Public. And in that book, I try to summarize the way in which those who have responsibility and want to do a thing and are dealing with an angry public can work to build trust. Two sentences. There's a whole book, back it up, but there's two sentences, right? If you're somebody who wants to do something that's going to affect a community, and that community demands a chance to engage with you, and they don't begin by trusting any information you present, any argument you make, why should they? They don't know you. And you say, oh, trust me. No, I don't think that's going to work. And if some community said to me, well, how should we engage this developer who wants to build a thing in our community that many of us are opposed to? And I would argue, well, certainly don't walk in there being trusting. But I would say to them, walk in there being trustworthy. And let's hope if you're modeling that, we can get the person on the other side to also be trustworthy. Being trustworthy, which is a step toward building trust. If you're dealing with someone and they don't think you're trustworthy, there isn't going to be a way to build trust. If you're dealing with someone and you're acting in a trustworthy way, and so are they, there's a chance to build trust. The two ground rules for both sides are the same. The first is, say what you mean. Do not try to withhold what you think they will see as bad news. 
Do not sugarcoat what you are presenting. Do not modify what you know to be the case in the hope that that'll at least get you in the door and maybe they'll like you better. And if they like you better, maybe they'll trust you because it will eventually come out that you didn't say what you meant. And now trust is surely broken and it's way harder, probably impossible to build trust after you've broken trust. Okay, so say what you mean. Got bad news? Deliver the bad news. If there's uncertainty, say what the uncertainty is. If you're not sure, say you're not sure. When you talk about your interests, say what your interests really are. Okay, second ground rule for building trust. Mean what you say. Very simple. Don't make a statement or commitment that you're not 100% sure you can live up to. Because if you're hoping they'll trust you and like you, because you're making a promise that you hope you can live up to, when you don't and you can't, that's it. No trust to be built. There's nothing to build on, nothing left. Two simple rules. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. And I have books of case studies in which you can just see the opposite in both instances unfolding on one or both sides. And you cannot build trust in the absence of observance of those ground rules in a context in which people are acting in a trustworthy way in the hope of building trust. I hope that's clear. That's a whole book. <laughs> I I really appreciate that and and the way you've laid it out and I, I it takes me to this conversation I think we often have in urban planning uh, about you know technical versus non-technical solutions to things and I'm sure you you're uh, you're well versed in all of this but I, I, I'm thinking about we often go in as activists or otherwise thinking we have a tech we have a solution here we we here's the solution we're offering to you trust us to engage in that which is we know never enough to actually get people to engage in the solution it's the same for activists and economic policy and everywhere else how would you uh, suggest that activists or urban planners or politicians might start those conversations to to in, embrace the appropriate humility and to not overpromise while also being forthright about what's possible. Um, where to cut into this process? Uh, the first thing is uh, you want to create a setting in which people who can speak like, if not speak for, all the relevant stakeholders have some ground rules. That's not a public hearing. Public hearing is random, who's there, and they speak for the two minutes they're allowed at the microphone, and there's no effort to generate shared understanding or no effort to exchange, exchange information in a way that might help somebody on the other side understand more about the situation, at least consider somebody else's view of things. So I'm in this setting now, I'm not in a public meeting. And in the setting, I spent a lot of time assessing the stakeholders and their interests and making sure I had a representative set of them 
who helped to design this setting informally with me as the neutral party. And they, if they don't accept me as a neutral, they need to get somebody else. They don't accept anybody as neutral, then they won't be able to do this. But if you can find someone who lives their life as a neutral and knows how to function as a facilitator, and they go out and start talking with all the potential stakeholders and work with the stakeholders to reduce the number of stakeholder groups to a manageable number, I would say something between 15 and 30. And then you work with them and all the other actors that are not that don't think they're already against something. They may be the proponents. Let's talk about opponents and proponents, and then we can talk about regulators. So three categories of stakeholders. They're all stakeholders. And I'm the neutral working for all of them to get a relevant set of people into a setting where we can, in fact, talk with the goal of exchanging ideas and information and the goal of generating a, a shared proposal that will meet interests on all sides better than doing nothing, better than anything anyone is still suggesting. Meet all the interests as best as possible. And if I can get a set of people Together, we would have ground rules. And the ground rules would say nothing that anyone says in these meetings is publicized. There's no media. There's no public. Anybody can say anything they want to anybody after the fact. They just can't attribute anything to anyone. So that anything anyone says in the meeting is confidential. Somebody can go talk to their, their spouse at the end of the meeting and say, you should have been at this meeting. This kind of person said this kind of thing. You can say whatever you want. Don't, don't attribute specific statements to other people. I realize this is a long-winded answer to your question, but it's, if I can't get the setting which includes the stakeholder representatives who have agreed to a set of ground rules, then I can't start to do the work that answers your question, which is joint fact-finding and collaborative problem-solving. Joint fact-finding says, okay, we have an agenda, we agreed these are the issues, here's the first issue. Um, we know everybody's interests because those were clarified when we brought you to the table. Now we're working on the agenda item, which is part of the problem. And one group says, you know, look, you know, we're against this wind farm. We know that when the turbines go round, anybody within 100 yards won't be able to sleep at night. They'll have headaches. They'll get sick. Uh, we don't even know all the bad things that that can cause. So we are against your proposed wind farm. And then the wind farm developer or the regulatory authority says, here's some studies that we've seen. We think they are definitive. They say no risk, no harm from wind turbines to anybody under any circumstance. And the first group says, we don't believe that. Who the hell is that from? We don't trust it. No way, no how. We know how do you know? We talked to someone who lives near a wind farm. Ah, you didn't just look on the web. You talked to someone who lives near a wind farm and they say they have these problems. Whoa, I can't just toss that out the window if I'm on the other side. 
So then we say, maybe we should make a joint trip to the nearest wind farm with all the people in this group and talk to some of the people who live nearby and talk to the developer and the regulator. Maybe we should create a task force within our group to take all the different sources of information that people think they have and summarize it, not to say what the truth is, but to lay out the range of things and the levels of certainty surrounding them. We're not going to settle on the truth. We're going to do joint fact-finding to satisfy the interests on both sides. Facilitator has to manage that whole process. But I, I'm not bringing expertise on the impact of wind farms. I'm bringing expertise on how to manage joint fact-finding. And if there's clearly a huge gap when we're done, then I would say, you know, I think this group needs to take a pause in its problem-solving work and get in here two or three experts that you all choose together unanimously. I, my job as the neutral is to give you a roster of people in their bios, and we'll choose three, and we'll have them come separately one at a time and answer your questions and look at what your task force wrote and tell you why they agree or don't agree with different things so that we now have equal access to experts chosen jointly not to tell us whether to build the wind farm, to help us understand the range of things we discovered through our joint fact-finding. And I, I've run this process all over the world with the help of people from the place where I'm just a coach or advisor. I wouldn't dare facilitate a project in my language if it's not theirs including not just whether it's English or something else, but whether it's a certain disciplinary perspective or something else. So I can coach a group, though, to do this and coach a facilitator from the place. And if you do this, you end by people having different understandings of why they believe what they believe, why someone in the room believes something different. And now we're going to joint problem solving which is, okay, what are we going to suggest about managing the risks related to wind farms, given different people's estimate of those risks? What Shouldn't we have a farther distance from the source? Shouldn't they have to buy homes within a different range? I don't care what the state law says. It, it looks like we have a big disagreement in how far you have to be before the shutter effect or before the sound effect comes. If we have a big disagreement about whether birds and bats are going to be killed when the turbines are going around, shouldn't we be shutting down the facility for certain periods of migration or certain periods of reproduction? Shouldn't we have the proponent have insurance sufficient to buy anyone out who says all of those risk mitigating factors aren't working for me. I want what my house was worth before this was proposed. You can figure out whether you want to resell it or just knock it down and keep it vacant. That, that's joint fact-finding in the face of disagreement. But the joint fact-finding wasn't to get agreement on the truth. It was to explain the variations. And then the joint problem-solving is about how do we proceed in the face of what remains? So I hope you see that as a response to your question.
I'm really intrigued by the way you frame the importance of exchange of information in creating that kind of a setting. Um, and uh, I think about, about this day and age of social media where there is almost information overload and also a lot of spread of misinformation. Um, how difficult or complicated does that make the job of a facilitator or the job of a negotiator or let's say a neutral party who's there to kind of... Uh, um, like you, uh, like you put it across as uh, an activity of joint fact collection and understanding, um, you know, the the steps that need to be taken ahead. There are lots of ways in which I used digital support in digital media when I'm doing um, a large collaborative process, but it's not to provide the basic information. Now, maybe AI is going to change that, but right now I'm not using social media for people to get up to speed on the underlying technical or scientific issues at the heart of whatever their disagreement is. I am using conversation. I am using collaborative inquiry. That is joint inquiry. I'm using in the social science community, I'm sure you know you two have heard of it, uh, PAR, Participatory Action Research. I'll take that group on a bus, 50 miles, to a facility like the one we're talking about, not built by the developer who wants to build the new one, but by, by the people that built it and it's been running. And I will have them do the interviews together with people that we have arranged to talk to in different roles in that community. What did you think was going to happen? What has happened? Do you talk to the regulator? Do you think you should have added different stipulations now that you see what's happened and it's been running for a while? That in joint inquiry, direct, par, to me, is more likely to give us information people will trust. They may not agree with it. That's not my point. But they will trust it. And I have to guide the inquiry to get at the corners of the space where ideas exist on that. That's why you need a neutral to help facilitate the statement of the problems, the questions, the need for information. When I do my stakeholder assessment at the beginning, I say to people, what do you most want to have happen in this case? Shut this thing down before it's ever built. What, what do you want to have happen? We build tomorrow. Okay. What do you need to know that you don't know now? I don't need to know anything. I know everything. So then I would say, so you know whether there's plants like this somewhere nearby? Yes. And you've been there and you've talked to the people who live next to them? Well, no, but we know that there's going to be crazy people there, just like there's crazy people here who don't want this facility and don't want to learn anything about it. I, okay. In my discussions, in order to get a complete set of stakeholders and then generate the agenda, I, I have a clearer idea of who knows what and how they think they know it. And my job is to supplement that, but to get them to agree that we're going to supplement that together, not because we're going to agree, not because there's a truth, and if you dig hard enough, you'll find it, only so that we understand the sources of disagreement, 
so that when we get to joint problem solving, we will have a way of thinking about risk management. We will have a way of holding people harmless if what they think is going to happen happens. The other side says, that's never going to happen. You're crazy. It won't do that. And so I might then ask a question. I don't make a statement. I ask a question. I says, you're absolutely sure it won't happen? So then you'd be happy to have a kitty of money in a local bank equal to the worst case, which is everybody wants to move out and wants full value of their property. And we put it there for five years. Earning interest, it's all going to be yours when you get it back at the end of five years. But during that five years, if they want out, they just go there. They don't have to file a case in court. And you're so you're sure nothing bad's going to happen. So why would you have any objection to a contingent agreement? That's me asking a question. Now, clearly, I'm imagining myself in one side's mind when I'm framing my question. I'm not saying what the answer is. But so I talk about the role of a neutral party not as one of the participants, but as the facilitator. Just, you gotcha, just to distinguish your use of the word neutral, you're saying there are people biased one way, people bias the other way, and people just want to come and learn stuff. They are neutral. And that's fair. But when I use the term, I'm talking about a professional neutral who's a mediator and whose job is to do the kinds of things that I'm describing. And my sense is uh, somebody walks in and says they know something, and I ask him, how do you know that? and ask a bunch of questions, it becomes very clear very quickly that they haven't really done serious homework. They looked for something that confirmed their pre-belief. And when it allowed them to say, aha, it confirmed my, then they're done. They're done investigating. And anything else is from someone who believes something different, so I shouldn't listen to it. And you can change, you can break through all of that in a ma carefully managed joint problem-solving process in which a facilitator's made sure you have all the right stakeholders, in which they do homework between meetings, in which the meetings are not public, in which there's a summary of each meeting on one page with no thing attributed to a person that the neutral provides so people can send it to their constituents so they're the people. But um, I, I'm not worried at the moment, I'm not worried about what people get from social media. I'm overwhelmed in the last three months with what AI might do to change everything I've just said. And uh, I'm trying to learn about it. But at the moment, I don't have an idea about whether AI is a remedy to the problems I'm working to address or a support for my effort to address them, or whether on occasion it's going to make the problems worse. I don't know yet. So to, to piggyback on this idea of the facilitator, the neutral party being so vital to this, uh, and kind of bridge the gap between the two arcs of our first season here, one on trust and one on power, you know, there, there seems to me to be uh, a need for a certain level of trust amongst all parties to be willing to come to the, st the table together. The stakeholders either need to trust that facilitator or the process or something in there to get them there. But additionally, there are these massive power dynamics that are at play that are very different across all of those different stakeholders. And I wonder, do you see that as primarily 
the facilitator's job to manage those power dynamics and manage that need and, and be the source of that trust that can bring potentially two parties that have violent disagreements with one another to the table? Or how do you go about creating uh, structures that can allow for the mitigation of those power and trust differentials? When you're talking about trust and power, I don't use the word manage because no way. Um, so obviously, trust and power are central to everything I've described so far. And the, and the mediator or the facilitator, the professional neutral, is um, part of the dynamic in which power plays out in a negotiation. And uh, what I say when I'm trying to call people cold and say, you don't know me, but there's an effort getting underway with regard to this proposed uh, wind farm. And uh, the, the idea is uh, to bring all the people who care about this together and see if we can't work out a solution. The solution might be don't build it. The solution might be project plus, where plus is a bunch of other things peripheral to, linked to, the community's interests, but not about building the wind farm. It's about taking away the coal-fired power plant in the county if you want me to support this wind farm. That's Project PLUS, where PLUS is not just a tweak on the proposed plan. And I'm saying to them, come to this conversation. It's going to have a series of ground rules. We're not going to have it unless we have representatives of all sides. We're going to have an agenda. We're going to have a way of working. My job is to facilitate. I'm alleging to be nonpartisan the way a referee in a soccer match would be nonpartisan. Sure, I have interests in my life, but you'll see if you do any investigation you want that I don't sign petitions. I don't go to demonstrations. I'm not standing one side or the other. I don't work as an expert witness in court. I am purely someone who facilitates collaborative problem solving in the public arena. And you can fire me at any time once we get started. You, not, not the whole group. You bring a concern stated out loud to the group. Give me a chance to respond. And if the whole group, including you, isn't satisfied, I'm gone. So you have authority over me in this process. And that's how I speak, and what's what I mean when I say to somebody who's been on the wrong end of earlier environmental justice type situations in that community before, why the hell should I believe you? You're white. You're a man. You're an old guy. Why should I believe you? Why, do I, why should I think you'll be neutral? I said, here's a list of situations over the last five years like yours that I've mediated. Here's the people most like you in each of those situations. Call them, email them, be in touch with them. They're like you. See what they say about whether or not I'm nonpartisan in the way a referee. And the reason I say nonpartisan, not neutral, is because referee's not neutral. There's rules of the game. That's why they hired the referee to enforce the rules of the game. Everybody expects the referee to support and implement and take responsibility for the rules of the game, but to be nonpartisan in terms of favoring one side or another. Then the second piece of the conversation comes when I've got the whole group together for the first time, and I want to address the issue of power. I say, okay. 
If I were to take a photograph of all you folks sitting here and sit with each of you before you outside the room and say, here's a pencil, put a one for someone who has no power and a 10 for someone who has a lot of power, including yourself, in the photograph. No problem. One, three, eight, six, four, ten. I said, okay. So we believe that power away from the table is distributed. And it's not a secret. But what's going to happen at this table, because of our ground rules, is nothing's coming out from here, except, except the statement of we're over, unless there's consensus. Consensus means overwhelming agreement. Doesn't mean unanimity. It means overwhelming agreement and everyone has listened to the concerns of anyone who's a holdout about what they're not happy about and what they want instead. And when the group says, we're done, we can't think of a way of helping those two people out of the 30, given what they keep holding out for is so unrealistic, that rest of us, we're all in. And then I will report that. And I will, in my summary to the community, footnote the two people who just did not want, they were involved the whole time. They made suggestions. There was a lot about this agreement that they agreed to, but they could not sign on overall. That's usually enough for elected appointed officials or for a developer to decide, okay, now I know how I can proceed and almost everybody will stand up and cheer. How did that happen? How did someone with a one over their head in almost everybody's picture end up being part of the agreement which suggests they have power. And what I say is power in a multi-party facilitated negotiation is dynamic. Whatever your power away from the table does not translate into your relative power at the table if we have a neutral, if we have ground rules, if we have representatives of all the parties, if we have joint fact-finding. And the way that happens is the power of a good idea. Now that you know what everyone's concerns are, take your own and put up a proposal that meets their interests pretty well and your interests very well. I have another book called Good For You, Great For Me. And I try to say it's okay in a consensus building process to seek a great outcome for yourself as long as you seek a pretty good outcome that beats, meets the most important needs of everybody else. So you create power through the power of a good idea, meaning one that meets other interests pretty well and yours very well. The power of principle. You say, the reason I'm not agreeing to this is that people who've been hurt in the past in this way should in fact be treated favorably, more favorably than everybody else this time. That's a principle. It's an ideological principle. And you keep holding to it, and other people have different principles, but they're not going to bring you on board until they address your principle. It's power in that principle. I don't care what your power is away from the table, the operational political power in the everyday world. Power of a good idea. The, the power of preparation. You come in and you really can speak to what your community wants and why. Your neighborhood, your subgroup. Other people, not so much. You, 
you will be harder to ignore. You will carry more weight. You will have more impact through preparation. Not just preparation, meaning you studied the material for the meeting, but preparation, meaning you can speak with authority because you spend time talking to your folks and you can give the reasons behind what they want. There's sources of power at the table which changed the 1 to 10 score for each person that everyone could write before they walked in the room. So to me, that's the link between consensus building and power. And it hinges on a process that's out of the press, that's continuous for a while. It doesn't come in one meeting, which is committed to joint fact-finding, which has a professional neutral, and which seeks consensus. Well, um, you've talked about working in different kinds of communities across the world. Um, and obviously the societies are not the same everywhere. Um, and I can speak a little bit from my experience coming from South Asia. Societies are much more hierarchical over there. How have you seen uh, power and trust both function in those kind of settings where um, certain class of the society, let's say, whether they may be differentiated because of economic status or because of their race or gender. How has that kind of played out in such meetings? It's different in different countries. So I worked in Malaysia seven years. I, I worked with my former students to bring public dispute resolution to Japan, to Singapore, to South Korea, uh, to China even within the totalitarian existence in China, there are case-specific community-based discussions in which the goal is informed consensus, even if the authority doesn't budge from where it was before this discussion started. So my first response is, it's different in different countries. What I found, though, in hierarchical context in which people with power and authority expect to do what they're going to do, without consultation beforehand with the people who are going to be adversely affected, um, I need to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with those folks. And I need to say, if you want to know what you an action you can take that will meet everybody's interests and respond to their concerns, I can help you find it. And you don't have to do anything with it if you don't want to. And I may not be able to get it. But if you'd like to know what you can do that, in fact, will have everybody, including your worst political enemies, cheering for what you're proposing, I could tell you what that is. And I have found that even those at the top of hierarchical context would like to know beforehand where they're going to have a problem, where they're going to have to invest energy in putting things down because people are really upset. So I can find it out for you at no risk. There's no promise when this process starts that you're going to do anything other than what you want to do. But, you know, you may want to sit in on these or have your staff or your people sit in on this process and understand. And maybe we'll come up with something better than what you would have done in terms of creating value for the for the whole community because they're just because they're in charge doesn't mean they don't 
want to create value for the community. They just want to be in charge of deciding what that is and how to do it. So uh, I have been in really asymmetric, really asymmetric situations in Asia and South Asian countries, uh, advising a, a mediator uh, who was someone that I've had a chance to tutor uh, over an extended period. So it's not me doing the mediation, but it's me coaching the mediator. But I am often brought in. I, I've spoken to four Supreme Courts of four different countries. And the question was whether decisions reached in this way were constitutional. Who said some ad hoc group can come together and make the decision? I said, they're not making the decision. There's always a misunderstanding. They're making a proposal. It happens to be the one proposal that everybody can say yes to. But they're not making the decision. You don't have to be worried about it. And this was, I was in Ireland and dealing with the Northern Ireland negotiations. How can these negotiations, which are taking place in different places, how can they be legitimate legally? How can they produce justice? And I'm saying the court wants to sit in and watch. Doesn't have to say a word. You want to watch this process? Send somebody to watch. You got to abide by the ground rules, but send somebody to watch. So my my sense is, if the right person can make the right argument at the right moment to the person at the top of an asymmetric hierarchy, there is a way to show them that the process I'm describing could well be in their interests. It's certainly in the community interests, and they're not against the community interests in most of the governmental context. I'm not talking about, you know, racketeers who've taken over the running of the country. I'm talking about a context in which there may not be democracy, but there might be somebody for religious or historical reasons who's the person in charge. I dealt um, in Malaysia on a number of different projects uh, with the religious leadership, which is sort of on a par with the UK, right? You have six people throughout Malaysia who, through lineage, are the people in charge of those areas. And the government, by the nature of its constitution, is supposed to involve and consult with them. It doesn't do that all the time. But I had a chance to meet with all of those different individuals. Um, and they, they did not have, in principle, an argument against, let's settle this fight that's going on in um, a city over people who've come here to work as temporary workers from outside the country. And they're supposed to live in, like, dormitory housing. They're not supposed to live with everybody else in the city. They're not supposed to fraternize with everybody else in the city. Well, yeah but they do. And then they immediately get sent home. And they're only invited to come for six months at the beginning. And there's more and more people working in the fields and working in the factories in Malaysia who are not from Malaysia 
because Malaysia has become a developed country. <laughs> There's a lot of people making more than enough money to live the way they would like as upper middle class. And they're not going to work in the fields. But somebody's got to take that responsibility. And so uh, they have all these workers. And there's battles at the city level between the city government, the federal government, which alleges to regulate these folks, the industry, which alleges to regulate these folks, people living nearby. And it, it doesn't go to court. So I said, why don't we organize a, a setting to try to work these out. And there was nobody either in, in the, the, the secular leadership or the religious leadership who said that was a bad idea, who said, no, I have to be the decider. In the end, they will be. But nobody said, so my argument is it's possible even in the most hierarchical context to um, put together an argument for consensus based, a fact-based or joint, joint inquiry-based consensus process. Uh, it's it, it's, it's got to be made. You can't just expect it to go forward. <laughs> you gotta, and, and it helps to have somebody from another country who's done this a lot and written books about it uh, whisper in somebody's ear, no, 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 look, this is... Here's your counterpart in this country. You can talk to them. Um, but, but it's not that the idea can't work. I guess, you gotcha, that's the point I'm trying to make. I know the idea can work. I mean, I mediated in Israel between the Bedouin and the, and the military in Israel about their settlements, which were there well before the state of Israel was created, and which Israel keeps trying to take away and destroy. Uh, these are not Palestinians. These are Bedouin. And um, we mediated, there's 32 separate sites, we mediated the first three at the inquiry of the Supreme Court. Uh, we got agreements where they would be integrated into the existing fabric of the community. Very complex negotiations. Mediated by teams that it took a year to train, one Israeli Jew and one uh, Arabic uh, Bedouin and those teams practiced out of the country. I had to take them out of the country to train them on a continuing basis for a year. And then we had teams ready to mediate at each because there's nobody from one or the other side and no outsider who would be credible as a neutral no matter what you say. So anyway, these are the ways around what looks to be an impossible problem in a hierarchical context. And I, and I can tell you the same version of that story in Latin America, in Africa, elsewhere. Hmm. Well, you know, the, as we get kind of close to the end here, our, our main target for this are social change practitioners, be they activists, NGO leaders, politicians, wherever kind of stripes they have. And I think there's often a feeling in there that um, you know, the activists, we need to go out and yell, the NGOs, we need to organize, raise money and, and make things happen. What, what would you tell them and encourage them to get to the table with one of these processes where they may, you know, the Black Lives Matter may not want to sit across from the table from a police department and have this conversation. Occupy may not want to sit down with uh, day traders and have this conversation. How, what would you say to those folks to kind of encourage them to engage in a process like this? 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm teaching at MIT 53 years, and I have this conversation multiple times every one of those 53 years with different sets of students because almost all the students who come into the urban planning degree programs see themselves as uh, makers of social change, as activists. Um, and 95% of them have a particular ideological progressive agenda. And I'm saying to them, uh, take this class. I'll teach you how to negotiate. It, it, you want to exercise some kind of authority or power on behalf of a certain view of the world, you're going to make a fuss until people agree to talk to you. Now, you're there talking. Are you ready? You're just going to tell them what you want, or are you smarter than that? Do you know how to negotiate on behalf of the interests you serve? I'm not talking about neutrals. I'm talking about do you know? No, of course they don't know. You don't, you're not born knowing how to negotiate. So I teach negotiation, but I teach a mutual gains approach to negotiation, which puts a lot of them off at the outset. They want me to teach a hard bargaining zero-sum model of negotiation. And I, after the first few weeks, I hold it up in contrast with what I'm telling them. And then I say, here, fine, let's, let's model this. I'll, I'll be the, the mutual gains person. You'd be the toughest hard bargainer you want. Here's a one-page scenario. Here's a script. Go ahead. Try to get me to give you what you want. Oh, I got you something even better, didn't I? And I teach negotiation, so I would argue anyone who wants to be an advocate needs to know how to negotiate. I suggest a mutual gains approach, but fine, learn, just learn how to negotiate. Because all the making of noise and all of the uh, action on the ground is it, the, the end result of it is you get to talk to somebody who wasn't listening before. And you've got to know how to negotiate. Now, a small number of those folks, as they learn to negotiate and learn to negotiate in a multi-party context, will see that having a neutral, and I teach courses about multi-party negotiation, and I get people to play the role, and I have case studies that are in video of real things, and they, they realize that in the multi-party negotiation in which they're advocating for their side runs better if there's a neutral. And someone's going to be that neutral, and you can learn how to do that. And so I have a not-for-profit that I started 35 years ago called the Consensus Building Institute, cbi.org, and it's now in the fourth generation of leadership since I started. And all people that work for me at one time or another, but brand new leadership just in the last year. Uh, it's grown to be an international organization. It's grown to have 45 full-time people in the, in the Cambridge, Denver, Sacramento offices. And uh, these are the small percentage of people who said, I think I could do that. Like, could you be a referee in a soccer match if you were a great soccer player? A very small percentage of people will want to be a referee. They know the referee is needed. So um, I'm not going to argue 
that all those people who come in to be social change agents and advocates should all become mediators. No, but they should definitely all learn how to negotiate. And I would suggest a mutual gains approach is what they learn, but it's up to them. But learn to negotiate. And then you'll see there's this role for a N, N plus one party, where N is, I don't care how many, it's all the stakeholders. And the plus one party is the nonpartisan facilitator and has to be acceptable to all of them. Well, what's going to make it possible for you to be acceptable to all of them? How you live your life. Not just what you can do, but if you live your life, you can't. There are lawyers who show up, they want to expand their practice. They say, I'll be a lawyer Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I'll be a mediator neutral on Tuesday and Thursday. No, you won't. Nobody who's been on the other side in the courtroom with you on Monday, Wednesday, Friday is going to want you as a mediator on Tuesday and Thursday. Not going to happen. So some small percentage of people, and, and the good news is there's lots of places to learn, but the best way to learn is to apprentice. And so that's why CBI became the place for people to apprentice to learn to be mediators in the public disputes context. Business schools train mediators in commerce disputes, and, and, and lawyers, law schools train, train lawyers in legal disputes. Um, but we and others train people in the public sector, in public management, public planning, public policy, to be mediators in the public realm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Saskai, and we're coming towards the end of our conversation here. Uh, before we wrap up, um, could you share some resources that our listeners might benefit from when they're working, I mean, to kind of fully understand these two concepts that we have discussed today when it comes to bringing communities together and uh, bringing some amount of justice also, I guess, in the world? Yes, justice is the word. I know it sounds self-serving, but I've written 23 books in six languages, and they do mostly build on studies of practice. So going back to 1985, uh, Breaking the Impasse was the first book that I wrote with six case studies uh, in which I tried to analyze the conflict and how it was mishandled, um, and then talk about how it would have been handled. Um, so that there's a lot of books, if you Google my name. Um, and again, they're not just do this, do that textbooks or anything. They're all case study built analysis, some of unsuccessful cases, the most formidable in terms of the number of pages and the weight of the book is called the consensus building handbook. And I took four years with 45 colleagues to see if we could agree as the people who are neutrals on how consensus building should work in the public arena. And it's filled with cases and examples, but also prescriptive material. But it's a giant doorstopper of a book. Um, so one, one source is books. I'm obviously not the only person who writes about this, uh, but someone who Googles my name will see. Um, a series of books describing different contexts. Like I, I have a book called Environmental Diplomacy, which is how to help countries negotiate around climate change. And I have very local things and national things and international things and cross-cultural things. Uh, I do a lot of work 
uh, with First Nations in Canada and with Indigenous in other places. I teach a course called Indigenous Environmental Planning at MIT so that people understand that there's a different context when you're dealing. And I'm working on the siting of renewable energy facilities, and a lot of the opposition is from tribes. You know, guess what? Because nobody talked to them about preempting their land and putting a facility there and then running the wires over the reservation with no electricity at a reduced cost for the, for the tribe, even though it's on their land. Seriously? Um, so uh, books for different contexts. Um, I do teach online courses that are self-paced that people can sign up for from MITx. It's, um, well, there's thousands of courses in engineering and science, but there's seven courses in, uh, in specialized kinds of negotiation. And so, um, and they're, they're mostly free. Um, if somebody wants to take an exam at the end and get a certificate, that costs $129. But the course itself, people can sign up for. So there are online courses, again, not only mine, um, although they're not that many. Um, and there's not really online courses for mediation because you have to, have, it would be hard to create images and stop the action and then start it again and have the mediator do something different. I mean, I could, there's no real mediation situation I can find that I can script in a way to make online mediation training. So there's not that. But if you look at uh, cbi.org and other organizations, there's a huge uh, set of uh, accounts of the mediation of all different kinds all over the world that CBI has done, presented in short pieces for people who want to learn about, not how to do, but learn about mediation. So those are three kinds of resources. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for your time today, Dr. Suskin. Any final words before we close? Uh, I appreciate the fact that you're running these shows. Um, I hope you can get the word out through uh, LinkedIn or other professional uh, social media so that um, people can see this, what you're doing and all the conversations you're having as a resource for professionals and not just uh, something to supplement what students are or aren't getting in their basic academic programs. Um, because there's, there are people who are trying to be self-made social change agents. Um, and I think they should hear from other people who've lived through some of what they're going to do who will help them. So I'm, I think it's great that you're doing the shows, and I hope you can get the word out about them. Well, thank you much. Thank you. Well, that was a tremendous conversation. It's such uh, such an honor to learn from from Dr. Suskind. What what are your kind of chief takeaways and thoughts here afterwards, Yugasha? Well, to quote Dr. Suskind here, power of a good idea cannot be underestimated, and that for me is like the best way to kind of close the season on trust and power. Um, very, very enlightening conversation for me. Um, and I know that he has a back background in water governance, something that I'm actively trying to work on. My dissertation is going to be based on that. So 
for me, it was very helpful, um, the way that he had framed his understanding of trust and power when it comes to negotiation, when it comes to environmental um, you know, consensus building, um, and also thinking about it in the frame of climate change and how it's affecting our cities today. He, ha he added a lot to my understanding. He added a lot to, I believe, everyone's understanding of what is going on in the world right now and how can we approach that subject in a way that can actually you know, bring some sense of um, conflict uh, resolution. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I was really uh, uh, taken with the idea he kind of put forward about, and I don't know that he publicly stated this, but, you know, the idea that trust and power are central and spoken. I think they're often unspoken in our kind of conversations. We all know that power is playing out, but we don't talk about it. We all know that trust relationships need to be formed, but we don't talk about how it's done. And so to kind of, you know, to put those both on the table and acknowledge them early on, I think is really a powerful way to think about our, our own work and how we think about conflict resolution or, or otherwise, which I, I think it is important to recognize that when we're talking about social change at the end of the day, that really often is, or almost always is conflict resolution work and, and seeking to build a better path forward. Um, but yeah, any, any chief takeaways that you, that you're continuing to ponder on? Well, another one of the, I'm going to be quoting him again here, uh, when he talked about say what you mean and mean what you say, do not commit un unless you know that you definitely will be able to deliver on your promise. And I don't think we think about this as much. Um, you know, going back to when I used to conduct some residential surveys and go around the community talking to them, definitely did not lead with any promises, but I had heard of instances where this was going on. It's not a great approach. You might get your answers. Um, you might be able to conduct, I don't know, like the gold star survey. But at the same time, it's it's not only unethical, but at the same time, it can, it can really affect the way you approach an issue, the way you approach a problem and, you know, go about finding gaps um, in the system. So... It is very important to be truthful to the parties that you're working with. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that there's this interesting question here. You know, we talked uh, a little bit with Dr. Tomlinson back in our trust talk. He was talking about bridging the divide between the political left and right in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a there's a refrain in there that's talking about highlighting our similarities, which I, I think is is the right way to approach it. But I think that uh, we've just been challenged in some ways to not steer clear of the other issues if we want to come to a resolution on them, to not not put the corporation in the room and suggest that they're just an actor like anyone else. No, we need to acknowledge who they are. Right. We need to you know, acknowledge why feelings might be high on all yeah. sides. And that starting from that point is actually a much easier place to kind of move forward with, with things. Um, and I, I, I will also say that I, I really appreciate his um, belief in and passion for the idea of neutrality and this mm -hmm. neutral party and you know you can hear it and it's you know he's written extensively on this the role of the facilitator the mediator in these kind of roles and it's not it's not for everybody um, but I think that 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 uh, the more people we can kind of prepare to be in that kind of environment and do that kind of work which is immensely taxing I think uh, 
is a is a really powerful tool that we can utilize in these conversations and um but yeah it's you know when we're thinking about the practitioner side of things are there things that that you you are going to be taken back into your own practice from this well you're talking about powerful ideas um and his idea of adopting a mutual gains approach and like you said it's really been he's a strong proponent of that he's been working on that for so many years uh, and if i think about it right now it just feels like it is a very very difficult thing to achieve how do you get all the parties to come to a table and get them to you know think about negotiation in a way that both the parties or i don't know multiple parties can stand to gain from these kind of conversations usually it's more about oh if we gain um something out of this so will you or it doesn't matter uh, as long as i'm getting my answers as long as i'm able to publish a paper on this um i'm good like i get my name on a paper so it it seems difficult uh, <laughs> for me right now to conceive of of uh, of a collaboration or of, of a stakeholder consultation where and i i uh, must be a very very long difficult road in terms of getting everybody um together to to agree to that um viewpoint but it certainly can be done so it gave me hope um the examples that he shared um uh, definitely uh, gave me a lot of hope so i'm hoping to you know delve a little deeper into this and see how it will play out in my own research hmm. well well put well put and i think you know for me he kind of left us with this uh idea that you know those of us that are social change practitioners whether we choose the neutral path or not need to understand how to negotiate i think that's mm-hmm. this and entirely crucial here i think that there's a uh, i might argue and i won't won't step too far out on this limb because i would need to research it more but i might argue that some of the flaws of things like uh, black lives matter and and um and occupy lie and the inability to move from mobilization of power to negotiation and that's uh that's partly due to a lack of trust in some of those situations which is very understandable but once you have that seat at the table he's called on us to figure out how to negotiate and you don't have to you know he's very clear you don't have to use his approach but you have to figure out how to how you want to negotiate at that point and i think that that's for me the secondary part of that is how do you build solid structures that allow all of this to happen and that's you know he i think he laid out and he in his work is has this incredibly detailed prescriptive way of going about doing this work how to determine who needs to be there how to you know he talked about you don't you don't talk to the media you don't describe names having those kind of structures in place is incredibly potent and powerful in these negotiations and even just the act of negotiating how we come to the table is an immensely powerful thing in and of itself and the difficulty i think comes given our study of power what happens when the entities that you need to engage with are not easy to establish and we essentially need to have this is a national international conversation that needs to be happening and being mediated so how do you do that in a way that is meaningful is the remains the big question i suppose at the end of the day there but right and it, just to add on to that um another powerful technique um that he mentioned was separating people from the environment and making sure that you know because it, it is important to think about the context and the circumstances that the 
negotiation or that the the environment that the stakeholders are coming together in and we see that a lot in terms of political struggle um in various countries um you, you know if you separate people from their environment and the kind of conversations that come out of that versus if you make sure that you know if you don't let's say pick them out of their environment you kind of get stuck in that same loop mm. nothing really comes out of it so i i thought that was pretty brilliant um and and really communication is key no matter and you need to learn how to communicate well so out of not only this conversation but all the conversations that we've had so far that has been my biggest takeaway to you know learn to communicate well absolutely i think that's very well stay in a great place to end this on the importance not and i would just add that the caveat of ethical communication on mm-hmm. top of that mm-hmm. right which i think we've heard time and again here but excellent well it's uh, it's been a great series here with you i think we'll we'll be back to reflect a little bit on this a little bit later but uh, thank you so much for taking the journey with me here you guys thank you so much Brad. it was a pleasure